0: Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Catherine Doherty, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, iHeart extends forbearance agreement Cobalt auction results, Harvey Gulf and HCR ManorCare file for bankruptcy, plus the weekly update on Puerto Rico and Venezuela. And on our deep dive segment, REORG's Deputy Managing Editor and Senior Legal Analyst, Angelo Thalassinos, discusses recent Supreme Court rulings and how these decisions affect the companies we're following. We examine the Safe Harbor decision and its effect on litigation trust names like Samson, Tribune, and Physiotherapy. We'll also hear an update on the latest from the GSEs Fannie and Freddie. It's Sunday, March 11th. This week, an anticipated iHeart bankruptcy filing was pushed further after the media company and its consenting lenders extended a forbearance agreement to the earliest of Monday, March 12th at 11.59 p.m. Central Time, or an event of default under the credit agreement other than those that resulted in entry into the forbearance agreement. As for the state of the negotiations with creditors, public disclosures reveal that not much has changed in terms of iHeart's proposed deal. On Monday, iHeart attached a draft RSA and restructuring term sheet that was shared with interest holders across the cap stack. While it did reveal the contemplated venue for the bankruptcy in the Southern District of Texas, the term sheet largely followed the same general contours of the harmonizing term sheet that iHeart released the previous week. Those terms still include an equity distribution going to the existing equity sponsors, Bain and Thomas H. Lee Partners, which had been a point of contention and difference in the terms proposed by the co-op group. Sources told Reorg, however, that equity allocation was not the only open item being negotiated. On Monday afternoon, Reorg reported that advisors to iHeart and its various creditor constituencies had held an all-hands call to discuss the term sheet. That call was followed by a second call that included certain investors, but not the company or its advisors. Separately, iHeart as part of Clear Channel Outdoor Holdings, controlling stockholder group, moved on Wednesday to dismiss the lawsuit filed by Norfolk County Retirement System, which was filed in the Delaware Chancery Court. We'll continue to follow the iHeart situation as it progresses this week. Cobalt International Energy reported results of its long-awaited auction of its Gulf of Mexico assets this week and brought in aggregate bids of $578 million. Now, I'm going to go to Jim in Houston. Jim, can you tell us who was the big winner this week?
1: Thank you, Catherine, and greetings from warm and sunny Houston, Texas. And yes, Total SA, the French supermajor, was the big winner in last week's auction, scarfing down Cobalt's anchor discovery for $181 million. Total also partnered with State Oil of Norway to take North Platte off Cobalt's hands for about $340 million, and for good measure, some exploration assets for $25 million. Total seems to like the anchor. Back in January, it acquired Sampson Offshore Anchor, which held a 12.5% interest, so between that and the Cobalt leases, it now holds 32.5% of the prospect, which is operated by Chevron with a 55% interest. Total has been busy elsewhere in the Gulf, having announced in January a major discovery at its Deepwater Ballymore prospect. Back to Cobalt. The auction drew aggregate bids of $578 million, which the unsecured noteholders described as dismal. Nevertheless, the company amended its disclosure statement to provide for 52% to 90% recoveries for the second liens and to reflect an agreement with first liens for the treatment of their claims that would avoid reinstatement. Judge Marvin Isger approved the debtor's disclosure statement and scheduled a confirmation hearing for April 3rd.
0: Thanks, Jim. And that wasn't the only interesting story coming out of the Gulf Coast this week, was it, Jim?
1: No, Catherine, it sure wasn't, and it's the Guidry family again, specifically Shane Guidry, a star of Mega Recreational Vehicles, part-time, former part-time, reserve deputy sheriff in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, and like his father and grandfather before him, the CEO of Harvey Gulf. Now Harvey this week filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of Texas with a prepack that will equitize more than 70% or nearly a billion of the pre-petition funded debt. Debtors will convert a substantial portion of their approximately $1.2 billion in secured debt into a new $350 million first lien term loan exit facility. Secured lenders will get their pro-rata share of that, along with 100% of reorganized equity subject to dilution by a management incentive plan and warrants in the equity of Harvey Shipyard Assets in Gulfport, Mississippi and New Orleans. Now, like Hornbeck offshore, Harvey's focus is on vessels qualified under the Jones Act, which requires that all goods transported between U.S. ports be carried on U.S. flag ships constructed in the U.S., owned by U.S. citizens, and crewed by, yes, you guessed it, U.S. citizens or permanent residents. So like Hornbeck, Harvey stands to benefit from any revival of activity in the Gulf. And let's hope that the good times will be rolling again soon for the oil men of the Deepwater gulf. Back to you, Catherine.
0: And Harvey was one of two filings we saw this week. Late Sunday night, HCR Manor Care filed for Chapter 11 in the Bankruptcy Court of Delaware. The provider of short-term post-hospital services and long-term care, based in Ohio, came to the bankruptcy court with a prepackaged plan of reorganization in hand. The plan contemplates that HCP Mezzanine Lender LP a wholly owned subsidiary of Quality Care Properties, Inc., would acquire all of the newly issued and outstanding common stock of the HCR parent holding company in exchange for the discharge of QCP's claims against HCR. I should note that HCR's operating subsidiaries are not debtors. As of the petition date, QCP had claims for around $445 million for due and unpaid rent under HCR's master lease. At the company's first day hearing, counsel for QCP said it would have $8 billion due under the remaining term of the master lease, and at least $1 billion even after accounting for caps under the bankruptcy code. But QCP has agreed to equitize all of these claims under the plan. On Tuesday, Judge Kevin Gross granted first-day relief for the debtors and set a combined plan and disclosure statement hearing for next month on Friday, April 13th. And on the island of Puerto Rico, on Sunday evening a week ago, the Puerto Rico Energy Commission, or PREC, filed an adversary complaint against the PROMESA Oversight Board and PREPA, the Commonwealth's power authority, seeking a declaratory judgment that PROMESA can neither mandate nor authorize PREPA to take substantive electricity actions that are subject to the commission's jurisdiction, but that the commission has not authorized. The complaint focuses on the fiscal plan submitted by PREPA, explaining that the plan proposes actions that will affect Puerto Rico's substantive electricity policy, actions relating to PREPA's power supply mix, capital and operating expenditures, internal operations, revenue requirements, and rate design, among other things. PREPA was a focus in Governor Ricardo Rosselló's State of the Commonwealth Address at the beginning of the week. The governor announced the filing of legislation to execute a proposed privatization of PREPA and accompanying energy reform, as well as new labor reform initiatives. The utility was also featured in Wednesday's Omnibus hearing, when Proskauer's Martin Bienenstock, as counsel to the Oversight Board, said PREPA may have sufficient funds to get itself at least into early May as a result of greater-than-expected electric bill collections, including pre-hurricane ones. VNN's doc said that if this turns out to be the case, PROMESA will file a motion in April for a hearing sometime in May on further financing for the electric utility. Also at Wednesday's hearing, Council for the Oversight Board and certain creditors of the Public Buildings Authority announced a resolution regarding the PBA funds rent motion. And Thursday, the Oversight Board filed a notice with the proposed consensual order resolving the PBA lease dispute. Moving to Venezuela, on Monday, Boys Schiller filed a complaint on behalf of the Pedevesa Litigation Trust against Glencore, Lucoil, Vital, and other large commodity traders and banks. According to the lawsuit dated March 5th, PDVSA's losses as a result of the defendants' actions amounted to many billions of dollars. The trust alleges that defendants conspired against PDVSA's interests by fixing prices and bribing and rigging oil bids to eliminate competition in the purchase and sale of crude oil and hydrocarbon products by the Venezuelan oil company – preventing other companies, including, quote, legitimate American companies, from competing for Petavesa's business. The defendants allegedly caused Petavesa to pay inflated prices for the purchase of products and services and accept artificially low prices for products it sold, according to the lawsuit. The Petavesa Litigation Trust was set up in July of 2017 under the laws of New York, to investigate and pursue recovery from parties involved in the alleged corruption scheme. Our top red stories of the week at Reorg were, 1. Cobalt announces auction results, $577.9 million in aggregate bids. 2. iHeart discloses term sheet, prearranged bankruptcy contemplated. And three, Frontier announces a cash tender offer for up to 1.6 billion in aggregate for certain series of notes. And now I'll pass it over to Jim for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Hey,
1: Catherine, and yes, every week is action-packed in the restructuring world, and this one even more so. On Monday, March 12th, bid procedure hearings for Bonton and Avion, and overnight. Precisely at 12.59 a.m. Eastern Time on March 13th, a forbearance expiration for iHeart Communications, which we will, of course, be monitoring closely. Tuesday, March 13th, a summary judgment trial for EcoBat. On Wednesday, March 14th, Remington's deadline to file for Chapter 11, an RSA milestone that was extended last week, and fourth quarter earnings and a conference call are due for tailored brands. Thursday, omnibus hearings for Toys R Us and Brightburn. And since it is March 15th, the middle of the month, it's back to the land of what have you done for me lately for Claire's and Nine West, both of which have coupons due and Iconics, whose 1.5 converts mature. There's also fourth quarter earnings from Revlon and Quorum Health, with Revlon's call that day and Quorum's on Friday, March 16th. And that's all from me. And make sure you look at our week ahead calendar, released every Monday morning, for more. Over to you, Catherine.
0: Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now, this week, our deputy managing editor, Angelo Thalassinos, and legal analyst Teresa Lee sat down to discuss developments at the Supreme Court and how the Merit Management Securities Safe Harbor decision affects litigation trust companies like Samson, Tribune, and Physiotherapy.
2: I'm here today with Angelo Thalassinos, a deputy managing editor and senior legal analyst on U.S. Credit. Angelo has been at Reorg since its earliest days, and prior to that was a senior corporate restructuring associate at Brown Rudnick. It's great to have you here with me today, Angelo.
3: Thanks for having me on, Teresa.
2: So let's get right to it. There's been a lot of recent activity happening at the Supreme Court, especially during the last two weeks of February. Let's first talk about the Merit Management and Securities Safe Harbor Decision, and then shift to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So the securities safe harbor decision would appear to affect litigation trust names like Samson, Tribune, and Physiotherapy, among others, while the GSE's decision affects both common and preferred shareholders of Fannie and Freddie.
3: Sounds great. I'd say that it's been a uniquely busy time at the Supreme Court with respect to matters involving distressed debt, restructuring, and special situations.
2: So turning to the Section 546E securities safe harbor decision last week... The Supreme Court issued an opinion in the Merit Management case ruling that the security safe harbor does not protect transfers in which a financial institution is a, quote, conduit. That decision appears to turn years of broadening interpretation of the safe harbor on its head. Can you give us a little bit of background on the safe harbor and its importance?
3: Yeah, of course. The security safe harbor of Section 546E is a limitation of a trustee's power to avoid fraudulent transfers under the bankruptcy code. Generally, fraudulent transfers are transfers of property by companies with the actual intent to hinder delay or defraud a creditor or, more commonly, with constructive fraud, which would result, among other things, from the debtor receiving less than reasonably equivalent value for a transfer and the debtor was insolvent or rendered insolvent at the time. Generally, the avoidance powers are intended to implement the core principles of bankruptcy, including equality of distribution. However, there are a number of limits on that avoidance power, including the security safe harbor. The general intent of that safe harbor is to protect certain securities or financial transactions involving securities participants, including financial institutions. But as with most things, the devil's in the details, and that's what the Supreme Court focused on. Avoidance litigation comes into play in many large chapter 11 cases, including the names you mentioned earlier, Samson Tribune Physiotherapy, and really could drive unsecured credit recoveries.
2: So that's right on driving recoveries. And as we'll discuss later, Samson focuses on a $6 billion alleged fraudulent cash transfer. But first, back to merit. What specifically was happening in merit management, and how does it reflect on the broader state of safe harbor law?
3: Sure. The facts of the merit management decision are relatively straightforward and important here, as they are not unique, being prevalent in many buyout transactions. Valley View Downs and Bedford Downs entered into an agreement whereby Valley View would purchase all of Bedford Downs stock. Valleyview arranged for Credit Suites to wire the cash purchase price to escrow agent Citizens Bank. Once the Bedford Downs shareholders deposited their stock certificates into escrow, Citizens Bank then dispersed the cash purchase price over two installments. Valley View later filed for bankruptcy, and the trustees sought to avoid the transfer of the cash purchase price to Bedford Downs shareholders, Merit Management, as constructively fraudulent. That's the general framework. As the Supreme Court put it, they had to decide whether a transfer from A to D is protected by the Security Safe harbor when such transfer was executed via B and C as intermediaries.
2: So, as we mentioned, the Supreme Court actually narrowed the safe harbor in its decision. And what exactly did the Supreme Court rule here?
3: That's right. The Supreme Court focused on the transfer that the trustee is seeking to avoid in its security safe harbor analysis, a narrower approach overruling certain other cases that expanded the analysis. So, it is irrelevant to the analysis when a financial institution played a mere intermediary or conduit role, A to D. The overarching transfer the trustee seeks to avoid is the relevant one. In that context, the security safe harbor did not apply because the trustee sought to avoid the view to merit transfer, and neither of those entities was argued to be a covered entity under the safe harbor. Thus, the ultimate beneficiary of the transfer is not immunized simply because the transfer was routed through a financial institution.
2: And can you tell us a little bit about why that ruling is important in the context of avoidance litigation generally?
3: The significance of the decision comes from the prevalence of the underlying facts combined with a narrow approach to safe harbor. The not-uncommon fact pattern of buyer-to-selling shareholder transfers routed through financial institutions are now no longer protected by the security safe harbor. That's not to say that such transfers may not otherwise be protected or defended against avoidance, but the security safe harbor appears to no longer be available. Finally, it is important to note here that Supreme Court's decision's does not suddenly open up financial institutions to liability or somehow abrogated the safe harbor protection provided to the transactions enumerated in the statute. It remains the case that transfers, settlement payments, and margin payments made by or to or for the benefit of certain entities in the statute remain protected. The difference in merit was that the transfer the trustee sought to avoid was not made by or to or for the benefit of a covered entity.
2: So, one of the situations, uh, as we mentioned, that could potentially be significantly impacted is ongoing fraudulent conveyance litigation in Samson. The Samson Settlement Trust's biggest claim in its LBO lawsuit seeks to claw back about $6 billion of alleged fraudulent cash transfers to, su- to selling shareholders.
3: That's right, Teresa. As we wrote about a day ahead of the Supreme Court's decision, Samson Settlement Trust unit holders likely welcomed the narrow interpretation of the security safe harbor that came down in the merit management decision. The Samson LBO lawsuit, which would likely provide the greatest potential for additional recoveries, aside from cash on hand for unit holders, is the subject of a motion to dismiss, including on account of the security safe harbor. However, the Supreme Court has now rejected the mere conduit interpretation of the security safe harbor, focusing on the overarching transfer. At least that protection previously provided to transfers to selling shareholders should fall away. It is important to note here that the security safe harbor was only one ground upon which the selling shareholders have sought to dismiss the LBO lawsuit in Sampson. We will be keeping track of how this one plays out as a motion dismiss briefing is currently scheduled to conclude at the end of April.
2: Now, a second case that could potentially be affected is Tribune. That case involves two different issues related to the security safe harbor, the mere conduit interpretation and state law preemption. In 2016, the Second Circuit ruled in a Tribune opinion that the safe harbor contained in Section 546E bars state law constructive fraudulent transfer suits brought by creditors. What's going to happen with that litigation now?
3: So even before this uh, merit management decision, Tribune had seen a flurry of settlement activity, and the Tribune litigation trustee has also likely welcomed that merit management decision by the Supreme Court. We could now see the trustee seek to amend its complaint to add a federal constructive fraudulent transfer claim now that the Seventh Circuit has been affirmed by the Supreme Court in Merit Management. The potential reintroduction of federal constructive fraudulent transfer claims could only serve to bolster the Tribune trustee's litigation position. The complaint there relates to over $8 billion in transfers in connection with the company's 2007 LBO. The actual fraudulent transfer claims were dismissed in January 2017. The Tribune case also involves the issue of whether Section 546E preempts state law constructive fraudulent transfer claims. The Second Circuit in March 2016 ruled that the Securities safe harbor does preempt such state law claims, and the Supreme Court is currently reviewing whether it should take up that decision to review it on its merits. Interestingly, a June 2016 Delaware Bankruptcy Court decision in the physiotherapy case held that state law constructive fraudulent transfer claims could proceed despite the safe harbor appearing to conflict the Second Circuit's Tribune decision, now pending review at the Supreme Court. Now that the Supreme Court has decided merit management, it may address the Tribune writ of certiorari and decide whether to review their preemption issue. The Supreme Court was scheduled to consider whether to review the Tribune opinion on March 2nd, but has not yet released its, its decision in that respect. Otherwise, motions to dismiss in the Tribune case were fully briefed back in 2014. A timeline for the court to adjudicate those motions is not readily apparent. I expect for there to now be increased activity on that docket.
2: So let's switch pace for a little bit and turn to the Supreme Court's recent denial of certiorari of the D.C. Circuit GSE's opinion. What does this mean for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac shareholders' challenges to the net worth sweep amendment? And actually, first, for those of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the net worth sweep, can you just give a brief background on that?
3: Happy to. We've been following the GSC's litigation closely. Fannie and Freddie entered government conservatorship in September 2008, and in August 2012, entered into what has been coined the Third Amendment, or the Net Worth Sweep Amendment, to Treasury's Senior Preferred Stock Purchase Agreements. Under that amendment, Fannie and Freddie would now sweep their net worth to Treasury instead of paying a dividend to Treasury. To put it in perspective, since the Net Worth Sweep Amendment in August 2012 Fannie and Freddie have returned $223 billion in dividends to Treasury, in addition to $55 billion in dividends between 2008 and 2012. According to the latest GSE's lawsuit filed by Al Creek, had Fannie and Freddie continued to pay the 10% cash dividends, they would have paid Treasury a total of about $94.7 billion from 2013 through the end of 2017. That lawsuit adds that if the GSCs had been permitted to repay principal, they would have had sufficient quarterly profits in excess of the 10% dividend to fully redeem Treasury's senior preferreds and rebuild capital to the tune of $128.9 billion. In addition, Treasury's $189.5 billion liquidation preference under the preferreds remains, despite payment of dividends.
2: Now, obviously, there's been a lot of litigation on that from shareholders of Fannie and Freddie. Uh, How have those parties generally fared in court?
3: That's right. That net worth sweep amendment prompted a litany of similar lawsuits in various federal courts across the country, alleging that the net worth sweep amendment was prohibited under law in addition to seeking damages, with certain more recent cases also posing constitutional challenges to the authority of FHFA. Shareholders' contract-based claims seek damages largely on account of deprivation of the opportunity to receive dividends and breach of liquidation preference provisions. To date, shareholder statutory and constitutional claims have been consistently dismissed by district courts with those dismissals upheld by circuit courts. Contract-based claims seeking damages have also been largely dismissed, with an important exception and development that I'll explore in a minute. There are also a number of separate takings clause lawsuits pending in the Court of Federal Claims, alleging that the net worth sweep resulted in a taking by the government that needs to be compensated. The takings lawsuits will soon enter into a motion dismiss briefing stage expected to last through the calendar year.
2: And so how does the Supreme Court's decision denying review of the D.C. Circuit decision play into all of this?
3: In short, the Supreme Court left intact the dismissal of shareholder statutory claims, alleging that the adoption of the network Sweep Amendment exceeded FHFA's and Treasury's authority under the Housing and Economic Recovery Act, And FHFA and Treasury each engaged in arbitrary and capricious conduct in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. That seems to now put an end to such statutory claims across the country that had sought declaratory and injunctive relief.
2: And how about the contract-based claims seeking damages that you mentioned earlier?
3: Here's where things get interesting for shareholders moving forward, in addition to the pending takings lawsuits. The D.C. Circuit, in the same decision that dismissed shareholder statutory claims, remanded back to the district court certain contract-based claims that had been previously dismissed. Back now in D.C. district court, a renewed motion dismissed those contract-based claims is scheduled to be fully briefed by the end of March. The two primary potential avenues of litigation recovery now for shareholders, which include the likes of Fairhome and Al Creek, are the Takings Clause lawsuits in the Court of Federal Claims and the Contract-Based Damages Actions in D.C. District Court. Various appeals also remain pending in other jurisdictions that we are following.
2: So with respect to Fannie and Freddie, what else would you say that shareholders should be aware of?
3: Well, as with any government-involved enterprise, Fannie and Freddie are subject to legislative and regulatory considerations and developments. To date, housing reform and resolution of the conservatorships have been elusive concepts for lawmakers and regulators. If that were to change, holders of both preferred and common stock could be significantly affected.
2: Great. And thank you, Angelo, for that overview. Certainly, there's been a lot of movement at the Supreme Court this term uh, for our restructuring and special situations universe. Thank you, Angelo, for joining us here today. And thank you to our listeners.
0: Make sure to tune in next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Katherine Doherty. Join us next time on Reorg's weekly podcast.